Let's open our Bibles to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. And tonight we'll take a look at verses 17 through 22. Romans chapter 4, verses 17 through 22. In Romans 4, Paul is using Abraham to illustrate his point that justification is by grace through faith. First, Paul will use, utilize an Old Testament verse, Genesis 15, 6, which says, For what does the Scripture say? And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. What Paul's point in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 31, and then in the illustration in chapter 4, is that even Abraham was not justified by works. Even Abraham was not justified by works. He wasn't justified by good works or faith plus works in verses 4 through 8 of chapter 4. He wasn't justified by circumcision in verses 9 through 12 of chapter 4. And he wasn't justified by keeping the law in Romans chapter 4, verses 13 through 16. We've covered these topics in the past several weeks. Tonight, we consider verses 17 through 22, in which Paul expounds upon how Abraham was justified. It seems like we've spent several weeks telling you how he wasn't, and now Paul's going to make the point of how he was. Now, you already know how he was, don't you? Because we've already studied verses 21 through 31 of chapter 3. But Paul is going to swing back around, and he's going to make his point and conclude his argument tonight. By now, I would have hoped that you would have gotten that point, that Abraham was justified by faith. Paul has stated it clearly enough. He says in chapter 3, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. We all have a need. Paul made that clear in Romans chapter 1, verses 18, or verse 18 through chapter 3, verse 20. The person who's an immoral person has a need. That's kind of obvious. We would all uh, say amen to that. But Paul says, well, that's true. You know what? The moral person also has a need. And then finally he moves to the Jew who has a need. All of us are born, actually. We'll find that out in the next chapter. We're born with a need. All are under sin. All fall short of the glory of God. No one is righteous enough to earn God's favor on their own. But God, through his Son, has provided the divine remedy to this terrible problem that Paul outlines in chapter 1, verse 18 through 320. God has provided a remedy. I hope you saw, as we covered that material, that we, and we're wrapping up a great deal of that tonight and next week, but I hope you saw that the hole was too deep for any of us to dig our own way out. I know that uh, most of you are real fine people. I'd love, all of you are real fine people. <laughs> I don't want to make exceptions. We won't talk to anybody's spouses to validate that tonight. But as wonderful as you are, none of you were saved by your own goodness. If, by chance, I should do your funeral next month or the month after, I'm not going to tell them that you're in heaven because of your own goodness. Because I couldn't do it. As wonderful as many of you are, most all, of you are. <laughs> wouldn't, it, wouldn't it be terrible to say, you know, our, our beloved brother was, was a complete louse, but he's in heaven today because of what Jesus Christ did. 
Well, no, we all know that the hole was too deep for us to dig our way out of. And, and no matter how good we are, no matter how good we view someone else to be, all of us need a Savior. The only way that that's going to happen is to utilize the divine remedy that, that God sent through his Son, Jesus Christ, and appropriate that remedy by grace through faith. And to use some of the terminology of Paul, by grace through faith alone, faith alone in Christ alone. And Paul has made it very clear that it's not faith plus anything. It's not faith plus works. It's not faith plus baptism. It's not faith plus joining a church, and it's not faith plus giving any money. It's faith alone. How dare we come with anything but faith? That would, that would diminish the sacrifice that Christ made. We've been on this subject for a little more than six months now. It didn't seem like that to me. You may say it seemed like a year to you, but, but it's, it's been six months that, since we started the idea that everyone needs a Savior, that the only way that we're going to be justified is by grace through faith, and then now we've spent several weeks on how we're not justified. But I know that it seems like a long time, but I do believe that it's time well spent. There is no more important area in theology than the study of soteriology. That's the doctrine of salvation. And I say that to people who are, I would assume, already saved. It's important for us to understand the foundations of our faith. For as we begin, then we will continue. As we begin in faith, we'll continue in faith as well. And this is a passage tonight where we'll see that those two ideas intersect. I'm afraid, though, that even though the area of soteriology is perhaps the or one of the most important aspects of theology, I'm afraid that it's here in soteriology, in application of the theology, that the Christian community is perhaps the weakest. There are some really sloppy gospel presentations out there. In order to validate that, and you can do it on your own, start looking carefully at the salvation track someone may pass out to you. Don't turn it down. For the next few months, take them. Take every one. Read it carefully. And see. You do your own evaluation. See if it lines up with what the Apostle Paul has said in chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through the end of chapter 4. See if it lines up. And I think you'll find that the, that the majority of them do not. For some reason, even those who write gospel tracts just can't help but adding a little works in there somewhere. It's subtle sometimes, but there are some really sloppy presentations. Now, I'm glad that people are telling other people about Jesus Christ. That is wonderful. We rejoice in that. And I'm certain that folks are coming to Christ in spite of poor presentations of the gospel. The reason I'm certain of that is because the Holy Spirit is the sovereign of evangelism. The Holy Spirit can take even a poor gospel presentation and make it effective for salvation. But from our perspective, that's no excuse for a poor and sloppy gospel presentation. You see my point? Just because we know that the Holy Spirit's going to clean it up, doesn't then make it, doesn't erase our responsibility to make it clear. It's our responsibility to get it right. 
So I believe that the last six months that's been spent in Romans 18 through the present time have been beneficial because they will help us to give the gospel correctly. We prayed tonight, and, and I was appreciative of it. We have a, an incredible family relationship that is that the Holy Spirit is building here at Pine Valley. It's something like I've, I've never seen before. The, what is happening here within this church, I don't mean within the walls, I mean within the body. But one thing I don't want that, uh, that I don't want to have happen is for us to internalize so much and so appreciate the love relationship that we have with each other that we want to make it some sort of exclusive club and nobody else can get in. Well, the message of eternal life has so much value on it that we should be racing to give it to other people. And what these last six months hopefully have done for us is to make certain that we have a, a good idea of what the gospel really is so that we can give it with comfort and not feel like we're under a lot of stress and tension or a presidential or vice presidential debate whenever we go give someone the gospel. You know, the more you know about it, the more comfortable you will be in spreading it. One, well, I guess it was uh, about 12 to 14 years ago, somewhere in that range, I was privileged to spend a weekend in Phoenix, Arizona, with a lady by the name of Dorothy Sarnoff. Now, you may recognize that name. Dorothy Sarnoff was in The King and I with Yule Brenner for a thousand performances. But before that, she was a speech coach in Washington, D.C. She was President Reagan's speech coach, as well as many other people, and she had worked with pretty much everybody in Washington. And one of the main points of her presentation, and it was a workshop kind of thing, but one of the main points of her presentation was the better you know your subject, the more comfortable you will be in presenting it. The more, and that's why she always had you practice your speeches. Now, we don't practice sermons. We don't, maybe a little portion of it or something, but, but talking about a speech. And so when people give these speeches in, in front of millions of people, I assure you they're not winging it. They know the material thoroughly inside and out, and that's what makes them appear very comfortable as they're speaking to millions and millions of people. Now, if you, if you attach the message of the gospel to that concept, which is far more important than any political speech, as important as they are. But if we can understand the gospel inside and out, if we know where the passages are, they'll help explain our position. If we know what the objections might be, and I'm not talking about in the, in the, in the sense of, of some sects which, which, which just practice arguing. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about knowing your subject really, really well then your presentation is going to be more relaxed. And the more relaxed you are, the, chance, more, the chances are greater that you're going to be speaking the truth in love and not in anger and not in irritation. So I think the last six months have been very, very beneficial to our church. And I hope that the result of the study of Romans chapter 118 through, all the way through chapter 4, I hope the result won't be just pride in the soul that we now know more theology, that we know more soteriology. I hope the result will be an actual outpouring of the gospel of grace from Pine Valley Bible Church. And not just the outpouring of the gospel of grace and the message of salvation, but the, the, the messages of the word of God that are out there. Because there are many people who are believers in Jesus Christ that unfortunately have been starved spiritually. You have something that's great. Don't keep it to yourself. It's a wonderfully powerful, 
incredible truth, life-giving truth, life-sustaining truth. Tell other people about it. Now, in verses 17 through 22, we'll, we'll see a summary of what the gospel is, how one is justified. Read along with me, and we'll, actually, let's begin in verse 16, although tonight's lesson will begin in 17, but the sentence begins in 16, so we'll start there in our reading. For this reason it is by faith that it might be in accordance with grace, in order that the promise may be certain to all the descendants, not only to those who have the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. And there's a comma there, and verse 17 continues the sentence. But before we go to verse 17, I want you to recall another verse that Paul has written in another place that is, in terms of concepts, is almost the identical concept. Do you recall where that is? It's in Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, apart from works. Paul's saying the same thing. In the, in, in the book of Romans, chapter 4, verse 16. Now, verse 17, As it is written, A father of many nations I have made you, in the sight of him whom he believed, even God who gives life to the dead, and calls into being that which does not exist. Now remember, we're using Abraham as an example, as the illustration. In hope against hope, he, so the he here is Abraham. In hope against hope, he believed, in order that he might become a father of many nations, According to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. And without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. And being fully assured that what he had promised, he was able to perform. Therefore, also it was reckoned to him, as righteousness. Now you see the word promise has come, up, has come up several times in the scope of these few verses. The promise was originally made back in Genesis chapter 3, 15. And that is that the seed of the woman would ultimately conquer the seed of the serpent. This is, this is the first mention of the gospel in the scriptures. And the key word, or the key phrase that theologians have attached to this is the word promise. In fact, some Old Testament theologians like Walter Kaiser call this the promise doctrine or promise theology, and it's woven throughout the rest of the Old Testament on into the fulfillment of the promise, which we see in the four Gospels in the person of Jesus Christ. Now when we get to... Forgive me for the green. I know you can't see it that well in the back, but I'll have to get some uh, black pins up here. In Genesis chapter 12... Verses 1 through 3, the promise is, is to be mediated through one man. And that man in the man's family will be Abraham. You see, in the beginning, the seed of the woman could be any male descendant, is the way that it's phrased in, in uh, Genesis chapter 3. It could be any male offspring of, of, of Eve. That's why she thinks it might be Cain. You can, if you're a careful reading of chapter 4, she thinks the seed of the woman who's going to conquer the seed of the serpent is the first child, Cain. Turns out it's not Cain, is it? Cain's, Cain is hardly someone who's righteous and will ultimately conquer unrighteousness. But when we get to Genesis chapter 12, we're introduced to a man. 
the man's name is Abram at the time we're introduced to him. And we find out that the, the promise is going to be mediated through Abram, who, who later becomes Abraham. And that promise will have three aspects. It'll have land, blessing, and seed. And you see where the promise doctrine of, of uh, Genesis chapter 3 has, is now moved through Genesis chapter 12, and it's zeroing in on one man and his family. We're not going to be talking about so much the land part of the Abrahamic promise. When Moses zeroes in, he zeroes in on this seed and the blessing part that's associated with the seed. So when we see in verse 16... For this reason it is by faith that it might be in accordance with grace in order that the promise may be certain, not just uh, to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but, all those, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham. The promise is the, is the original promise, which is the promise of eternal life. Now, as the passage progresses, Paul is going to do the same thing Moses did, and he's going to start zeroing in on certain aspects of that promise that are unique to Abraham. Keep that in mind, and as we go through the passage, I think it will help us. But remember, no matter what aspect of the promise that we're dealing with, it's, it is originally appropriated by faith. Hence, his quotation of Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. The reason I bring that up is some of the things that are in this passage, may not, Paul is, is not necessarily focusing in on chronology. It's a logical treatment of the passage, not necessarily a chronological treatment of the passage. That's caused people a great deal of of trouble over time, and I, I hope to avoid that in the time we have tonight. Verse 17, as it is written, this is a quotation from Genesis chapter 17, verse 5. At the point that, that this statement is given to Abraham, a father of many nations, I have made you. At the point that that statement is made, Isaac had not yet been born. It's important to understand that, but, but God talks about it as if it's already a done deal. Abraham by this time, though, has attempted his own solution to affect God's promise. Because God's promise had been given to him. I'm talking about now the promise of land, seed, and blessing. That aspect of the promise had been given to him years before. He hadn't realized it. So Abraham, in my view, panicked. You remember what he did? In order to get a seed or a progeny, he went into Hagar, had a child with Hagar by the name of Ishmael. But God's plan for Abraham wasn't to do that. It wasn't to panic and go outside of his divine order and have a child through the, um, the servant of Sarah. The child should have come through Sarah. So God's plan was to have that child within the bounds of the marriage relationship. That seemed impossible to Abraham. Because Abraham understood a bit of physiology. We think we're the only ones that understand physiology. They understood it too. He understood that, it's, uh, that a 99-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman don't normally procreate. And, and a child's not normally produced. He's right about that. Now one note, Abraham did have Ishmael when he's old. I believe about 86 when he has Ishmael. But there's... So I guess there's a possibility physiologically that he could have fathered a, a child at 99, although the text is going to say he's as good as dead sexually. But no way for Sarah. Sarah's, Sarah's womb was dead. She was way past the menopause. 
And so it was a, a normal, in, under normal conditions, it can be considered an impossibility. The point is that the situation was hopeless without the intervention of God. And this falls perfectly in line with the flow of Paul's argument so far. And this is it. Just as Abraham and Sarah had to trust God to rescue them from a position of childlessness. And we're not counting Ishmael, because Ishmael doesn't belong to Sarah. Just as Abraham and Sarah had to trust God to rescue them from a position of childlessness, so also we must trust God to rescue us from a position of condemnation. And just as their position of childlessness looked hopeless, so also it was hopeless, our need of a Savior before we come to Christ is, is a hopeless situation apart from the trust of God. So what Paul is doing here in closing this section up and using Abraham as an illustration, he's, he's using Abraham as an illustration of one who had to exercise faith. God gave the ability to father many nations to Abraham when he was as good as dead regarding his reproductive powers. And Sarah was definitely beyond hers. God summoned yet uncreated nations as he had summoned the uncreated cosmos, the world, merely with a word. In this case, the word of, a word of promise. So verse 17 says, As it is written, a father of many nations, I have made you in the sight of him who believed, who exercised faith, even God who gives life to the dead. Now, I don't believe that's necessarily talking about Abraham there. It's, I believe he's talking about those who are spiritually dead at this point. And then calls into being that which does not Exist. Here's the point, and don't miss it. It's beautiful. If God could create the universe by the word of his mouth, bringing life to the sexual function of two individuals past their normal childbearing age doesn't seem so big, does it? If he could create the universe by the word of his mouth, then taking care of Sarah's barren womb doesn't seem like a big thing, does it? He created that all that anatomy and physiology in the first place, called it into being out of nothing. It, it doesn't seem so big anymore. And neither should that car payment that you're so worried about, or the house payment, or the insurance payment that you can't make this month. Or that diagnosis that wasn't exactly what you wanted to hear when the doctor set you down. Or that family situation that's causing you to lose sleep. If God can create the universe, He can solve whatever problems that life throws your way. And I challenge you to think of an exception if he created the universe by the word of his mouth, and not only created it, but sustains it by his omnipotence and his omniscience, the fact that he's all-powerful and the fact that he knows everything that can be known and always has, never learned anything, always knew it, I think he can handle that car payment. I think he can handle the family situation that you're so stressed out about. 
And I'm not saying these aren't real problems. They are real problems. They are painful things. And he can also handle whatever illness it is that you've got facing you. This is not a promise that he'll handle it the way that you think it should be handled. It's not a promise that, that you'll be healthy, wealthy, and wise. It's false theology. The Bible never says that. But it does mean that he can do it. Now there's another factor that we learn from looking at the remedies that he's provided for this great hole that we've dug ourselves, and that is the, rem- the divine remedy of Jesus Christ that we mentioned a minute ago. You know the verse that probably you've memorized before any others, maybe the first one your mom or dad ever told you, so we kind of think of that as a child's verse, but it is far from being a verse for children. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should never perish but have everlasting life. That's the wild card. See, not only does he have the ability to handle the problem, If he could create the universe, I hope you would agree with me, at least philosophically, that he has the ability to handle the problem. If he created the universe, he also has the knowledge about the problem. But John 3.16 and other places tell us that he loves you dearly. So, So dearly it can't even be put into words. If he would be willing to sacrifice his own beloved son for you, then he's going to take care of the problems that life throw at you. No matter how difficult those problems appear to be, and again, I'm not minimizing anyone's problem. There are, I mean, in our prayer list tonight, for goodness sake, there was severe, incredible suffering that, that many are going through. Some in this room, some that are loved ones of people in this room. But he can create the universe. He can solve the problems that life throws at us. And in his love, if you mix his love with his omniscience and his omnipotence, it's a thing of beauty. And we trust him. We lay the problem at his feet and say, I am yours. This, I, I know that you love me. And I know you're aware of this. I lift it before you now. And then you can sleep through the night. Remember, by the time that Genesis 17, or the events of Genesis 17 occurred, Abraham had already tried his own solution to this problem that he faced. He had been promised a child. A child that wasn't forthcoming. So he went out and got one the best way he knew how. Outside of the boundaries that God had set. He turned away from God's remedy. Because he thought it was impossible. Now he needs to turn away from his own remedy and really trust God. I wonder how many people are attempting their own remedies to get to heaven. Their own remedies to this problem of condemnation that we read about in chapter 1, verse 18 and following through 3.20. When God has plainly said, trust me, there's one way to get here. It's open to everybody. If people talk about Christianity being exclusivistic, it is, in the sense that there's one remedy. You have to go through Jesus Christ. But guess what? Everybody can come. It's, it's open to everyone. Come one, come all. But you've got to go do it God's way. But unfortunately, a lot of the times, you look out at the world, and people are attempting their own remedy, just like Abraham attempted his own remedy 
in going in with Hagar to have a son rather than waiting for God to do it within the bounds that he had set up. People say, I'm going to be good. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to give some money to charity. And the worst one is that I've heard, I'll just take my chances. Take your chances? With, with eternity? You're going to take your chances with eternity? Not me. Not now, not in a million years. That's one thing I'm not going to gamble with. It's what's going to happen to me for eternity. How many believers, how many believers are also attempting their own remedies for life's problems? Subsequent to salvation. We accept the divine remedy for the condemnation that we learned about. But then after that, we attempt our own remedies like Abraham did, outside the bounds of what God told us that should be right. And we wonder, what's going on? You know, when that happens deep down, we know we're doing it. Deep down, we know we've gotten outside the boundaries that God has set, us, has set for us. And we know that we have to twist the rules. When you find yourself having to twist the rules to get one of, our, one of your schemes, my schemes, to work then you can pretty well bet that it's not the divine remedy. If we're having to twist his rules to make things work, it's not the divine remedy. Don't play Abraham in this case. Don't follow the pattern that he, that he took when he had a lack of faith and went into Hagar. Follow the pattern of Abraham in terms of our subsequent faith that he had when he finally trusted God and went in with Sarah. In verse 18, the text says, In hope against hope he believed. The, the phrase there, in hope against hope, should be understood. The, word, the Greek word hope, elpis, means a confident expectation or an expectation that something is going to come to pass. But the phrase, in hope against hope, means he has a confident expectation that this is going to come to pass, even though under the physiological understanding that he had of his day, it ought not to. But he still trusted God. God's the one that told him this is going to happen. He's told him a couple times now. He told him it wasn't through Ishmael, because Abraham wanted it. Even after he's told that you went the wrong way, he still begs, can't you just do it through Ishmael? Because Abraham couldn't see how it was going to be fulfilled. In hope against hope, he believed. He trusted in order that he might become a father of many nations, according to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. So Paul concludes, or concluded his proof that faith was the only method of justification before the cross by showing that Abraham, or showing what Abraham did in trusting God, is essentially what everyone must do. We all must exercise faith. Abraham's hope rested solely on God's promise. He had no hope of obtaining descendants naturally. His faith was not a condition for the reception of the promise of progeny. I wanted that to be clear. But he believed with the intention of receiving it. Now, his faith that he exercised in Ur way back, you know, when he was a younger man, or when he was 75, was a condition that he had for receiving eternal life. That's the promise. Again, that's why I brought those two things up in the beginning. I don't want you to confuse the two. He's, but he is using Abraham's subsequent faith as an illustration now. Verse 19. 
And without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body now as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. Actually, the Old Testament tells us specifically he was 99 when that happened. And the deadness of Sarah's womb, yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully assured that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. Even though Abraham's faith was stronger at some times than it was at others, Paul could say that he was not weak in his faith. So Paul, in the, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, cuts Abraham some slack for his failure. That gives me a lot of hope, too. Uh, some of us are so, and, and rightly so, we're concerned with the outcome of our lives that I think we overthink our failures sometimes, as though God is going to, to keep a, a very specific record of all those and can't wait to shake his finger at us at the judgment seat of Christ. I don't see it that way. I think at the judgment seat of Christ is going to be broad strokes, broad movements. How were you, uh, on the whole, were you, were you faithful with what, I, uh, with what I provided you with? But Paul does... Cut him, seems to cut him some slack here, even though the Old Testament does indicate that there were times when he exercised more faith than others. We'll put it that way. When Paul says that Abraham did not doubt because of unbelief, he doesn't mean that Abraham never had momentary hesitations, but that he avoided a deep-seated and permanent attitude of distrust and inconsistency in a relationship to God and his promises. Abraham believed God in the face of discouraging facts that he contemplated courageously. You know, the answer to your problems, the answer to what's troubling you right now, is not to stick your head in the sand and act as though the problem doesn't exist. That's not, a, that's not the way to handle problems biblically. You have to face it head on. It's okay to say, Father, this is really troubling me. He already knows it is. Just be honest with him. It's okay to recognize that these things exist. Don't try to act like they're not problems. Don't try to act like they don't bother you. Be who you are. I mean, it, there are certain times for everything. The book of Ecclesiastes tells us that. And if something's troubling, then it's okay to admit to God that you're troubled by it. But he believed, despite the knowledge, that what God had promised couldn't happen naturally. Abraham grew stronger in faith as time passed. And the record of his life in Genesis shows this. He gave glory to God by believing him. Verse 21, as we close, explains the essence of faith. Abraham was fully assured that what he had promised, he was able to perform. That does seem to be the essence of it, doesn't it? Faith does not mean that you will always get your way. Faith doesn't mean that the prayer that you pray tonight will be answered in the way that you wanted it answered. Even our Lord in the Garden of Gethsemane said, Father, not my will, but thy will be done. He had a request, if it be thy will, let this cup pass from me. But he acknowledged that the Father's will is what he wanted. Faith means that you know that God can handle the situation, that he knows about the situation, that he can handle it, and that he loves you. In the case of our justification, God has promised that he will give you eternal life if you would just trust in him. And the question is, do you believe that? Are you fully assured that what God's promised, that he can bring it to pass? And finally, in verse 22, 
we have a restatement of what Paul did in verse 3. These are bookends to show you that his commentary, his New Testament commentary on Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, is drawn to a close. Therefore also it was reckoned to him his righteousness. That's the bookend that indicates this section has now been finished. It brings uh, the, the conclusion, to a conclusion, the argument concerning Abraham's justification. Paul had set out to prove the point that justification was by grace through faith and not by works. Hence, Romans chapter 4, at least up to verse 22. Abraham was justified by faith. This justification occurred chronologically long before he trusted God to give him a progeny. But Paul, like Moses, refers to a time later than Abraham's initial justification in discussing his faith because of the significance of this seed component and blessing component to the Abrahamic covenant. So what has Paul done in chapter 4? First, he's made a negative case. Abraham was not saved. He was not justified by good works or faith plus works. He was not justified by circumcision. He was not justified by keeping the law. He was justified by faith. I hope that this will help you in your own witnessing. Especially, in my own experience, the fact that we're not justified by faith plus. If you're into memorizing scripture, or at least memorizing the address where you can find scripture, that's one that I would spend some time with, and that's Romans 4, 4 and 5. Because the majority of people that you will talk to out there in your gospel discussions, if they're not already saved, will be trying to add something. They'll either be trying to do it on their own. Not, not too many people are going to be trying to keep the Mosaic Law. Not that many people are really going to be trying to be saved by circumcision. But there's a bunch out there, a lot, that are trying to keep to trying to be saved by faith plus works or just by works. Let this be not theological material that stays in our souls. Let this be theological material that works on our souls and motivates our soul to go forth and present the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and what he did for us to present, to present that divine remedy to as many people as we possibly can. It is truly a matter of life and death, not something to be gambled with. Heavenly Father, we're, we're intensely grateful for what you've done through your servant Paul in these first four chapters of the book of Romans, minus a couple of verses, in which you have outlined exactly what has, uh, outlined exactly the problem, the deep hole that we were in, and now also the divine solution, the divine remedy. May we learn it, may we have a thorough understanding of it, and then, Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit in the days, weeks, months, and even years to come would motivate us to spread this wonderful news. May we never keep it to ourselves. And Father, we'll ask, we'll ask for the power to do that, as well as the motivation. In the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.